part of the conversation. And uh, before we uh, get started and I let you, let you hear a little bit from him, just going to pray and ask God to lead and guide us. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we're so thankful for the gathering of the church and we're so thankful for each and every person that is here. We're thankful for the word of God that does not return void. Uh, we're thankful for uh, the work of Christ on our behalf that we just spent time singing about to music truth about who Christ is and what it is that he has done for us. And we're so thankful to you, Lord God, for that. We give you the praise and the glory for it. We ask you now, Lord God, to bless and lead this conversation as, as I share, as Herlene shares, as the congregation hears. Lord, may you be glorified. May your truth be made known. And uh, we pray, Lord God, that these things that we're talking about would help us to be the witnesses that you've called us to be in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So I'll let you uh, hear from uh, Herlene. And Herlene, if you could just start by just telling us a little bit uh, about yourself so the congregation has a little bit uh, better of an idea of who you are. Well, good morning, congregation. My name is Herlene Valencia. I'm married to Lori. I call her Bumblebee. Uh, <laughs> We've been married for about 11 years, and we've been attending fellowship for the last five years. Okay, and you have a, I a have background a, in academia, but now serving as a hospice chaplain. As a hospice chaplain. That's right. And so, uh, lots of different opportunities with uh, gospel witness for that, that I'm sure will come out even as we, as we talk some Certainly. today. So, we want to get into uh, Herlene's story a little bit. So if you could just tell us a little bit about your uh, religious background growing up. I was born uh, into a Catholic family. My mother was a very devoted Catholic. So church, going to mass, was a requirement in our home. Um, by going to church, we participated in the holidays that the Catholic Church celebrates Eastern Christmas. Uh, I was in church mostly every day. Um, eventually, a nun um, asked me if I would like to be an altar boy. And I said, certainly. So I became an altar boy. But this is a little later in my life. As, as I was growing up, the desire to be close to God with my mother was always important to me. And as I attended church and saw uh, the, the Christ on the cross and Mary and, and angels, etc., I de developed a devotion to, to these things. And participating in the Mass was important to being a good Catholic. Yeah, so you, you grew up in a home where it was very much a part of life to be, uh, to be going uh, to church in a, Catholic, in a Catholic setting. And you also, after serving as an altar, bo altar boy, you also had a desire to um, eventually become a priest. Is That's that correct? True. Could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Uh, well, my mother, we, we lived on an incline of a hill, and there was a small Catholic chapel next to us, the ladies would gather and say prayers to Mary. Uh, they would have the rosary with them. And my mother came to that, that chapel, this is the rosary, and that was part of being Catholic. 
so I remember sitting there as a kid. I was seven years old, and I was looking out the, the door of the chapel while they were saying Hail Marys, and uh, there was a figure that I saw. I'm seven years old. Um, it was a male figure. Um, it was wearing white clothes that I could see through and didn't speak to me. Simply, I, I could sense what he was saying, and it was Alberto, which is my middle name. I want you to be my disciple. But I didn't say anything about it. I was seven years old. I kept it to myself. And uh, when I was eight years old, I thought about these things more carefully, but I still, as a kid, at the age of nine, I went to the bishop. Uh, all the priests, all the nuns were European, Italian. I grew up listening, hearing Italian being spoken. And I went to the bishop and I said, I want to be a priest. Or he was delighted. Uh, being from Italy, coming overseas to raise missionaries and local priests, having a nine-year-old coming and saying, I want to be a priest, is like a great day. I wanted to be a priest. I, I felt that I could serve God that way. At that time, between seven and eight, between that vision and going to the, the bishop, I was reading leftover Italian books that some missionaries returned back to Europe and they left these books. And I remember going through a book of uh, a priest from Italy who had moved to Africa, uh, Father Enrico Fare. And he had gone to Africa working with uh, Africans. And I, I can see now the picture that I was looking at as an eight-year-old. It was a picture of a man who had lost all his limbs because of, because of leprosy. And Fare was teaching him how to smoke a pipe. And I remember that. And so when the nun asked me if I wanted to be an altar boy, I was delighted because it was the closest to becoming a priest for me. Yeah, so that was, and, and uh, Herlene, you were, you were born and grow, growing up in Ecuador, so this was uh, not in the, in the U.S. where you were right. experiencing this, but very much around um, Catholics and, and priests that were very much uh, committed to, uh, to what it is that they were teaching. Um, you, you had also a situation um, where things started to, uh, to change for you. Um, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about how that happened for you when, even though you were growing up Catholic, there was this kind of turn um, and how that started for you, the story with that? Certainly. Uh, I remember that because of where we lived, I used to watch this family that would go to church every day. It was a, a mother, a father, and two children, a boy and a girl. And I noticed that they always carry a book, a black book with them. And I was curious to know what that book was. In, my, in, in our home, I like books. You can ask Bumblebee about that. Uh, and it's, the fact of the matter is that I saw this family every Sunday, so I asked my mother who they were, because it was strange in my town to, to carry a book. Um, and she, she would kind of laugh a little bit and, and say something to the effect that they are 
their brothers or their Protestants or something like that. But at my age, I didn't understand. Um, I remember wanting to know what that book was. But during the night, I used to mess with a shortwave radio. Uh, Two in the morning, I would be messing with it, trying to listen. And I ended up listening to the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation in London. And I remember being fascinated by what they said, but I couldn't understand what they said. Eventually, I landed another radio station in Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador, and it was a Christian radio station, and they were offering a New Testament in English. But this New Testament was in Old King James. It took me about two weeks to take down the address so I could send a letter. In the meantime, I decided to go to the bookstore that was in my town, that was an evangelical bookstore. And I didn't know, but the man that I used to see walking down the hill was the manager. So I remember going there and and saying to him, do you happen to have an English New Testament? Because I want to learn English. And he said, no, we don't have those here. But there is a missionary in town that probably has one for you. And so I went to look for this missionary. His name is Paul Erdell. He still is alive. He's part of the Missionary Alliance Church. And here I am at his door, knocking on his door and saying, my name, in broken English, my name is Alberto, and I want to buy a New Testament in English for you, from you. And he looked at me and welcomed me. And I mean, and here's another missionary from another country having a kid asking for a New Testament. Yeah, that's, that's uh, what they lucky. look for. That's right. And uh, I, I always say to Paul, it was a mistake that he opened his door for me, to me because I became a pest. I would be there every day. And uh, he and I became good friends. And he gave me um, a copy of an easier-to-read book, Good News for Modern Man, which is a New Testament. And he has pictures in it. As a kid, I liked the pictures. And I was able to, to learn about the Lord. Eventually, he invited me to a worship service. And at the end of that service, I remember looking at the altar. And on the, on the top of the, the altar, there was this phrase, I know my Redeemer lives, from Isaiah. And I remember crying in the back of the church. And Paul said to me, what's going on? And I said, I want to be saved. I don't recall what exactly happened, but I said, I want to be saved. And he said, you know, walking with the Lord is not a matter of just tears. It's a commitment for life. Mm. And I said, okay, I want to be committed to him. Uh, Fast forward um, a few years later, I was probably about 15 years old, 13, 15 years old, when I accepted the Lord. And obviously, that changed a lot of things. Um, I kept reading more spiritual things. Uh, At the age of, I remember, at the age of 10, I was reading Thomas Aquinas' Summation of Theology. Uh, That's what we all read at at 10. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was the kind of literature that fascinated me, the kinds of things that I was interested in. Um, most of the stuff I was reading, it was interesting, but developing that relationship with Paul 
was an interesting way of getting to know Jesus a little more. So when you heard this uh, message um, and, and the gospel and you were hearing from Paul, what was, what was standing out to you about this biblical uh, gospel message that was, that was different um, from what you were previously hearing in Catholicism? One of the things that was interesting uh, was the fact that there was only a person up front with the book in preaching. There were no statues. There, were, there was no ornament, ornaments that the priest would wear. It was just the gospel being preached. And it was impactful to me because it was different. It was a way of I could see accessing God easily instead of I have to go through so many things that I had to go through as a Catholic. Um, and not just only being Catholic as being born into a Catholic church or attending church, but actually being committed to being a priest. I did retreats in the minor seminaries with other seminarians, sort of attempting to figure out my vocation. Eventually, I did retreats at a major seminary, which is the seminary where now young men become deacons and eventually they become priests. So I did all of this in an attempt to ascertain who I was in relationship to my vocation at the time. This is back in 70s, 80s, where vocations in the Catholic Church were uh, numerous. That's changed ever since, but it was very popular to becoming a priest was like the thing that you, you had to do uh, because it was so uh, popular. So in my case, it was different to hear the gospel being preached. It was different that I didn't have to confess uh, my sins, but I could go to God. It was different that I could, I, I saw the fellowship that people had, uh, which is quite different in a Catholic environment. Um, and I was able to, to look at the fact that I knew that there was this a priest, a tiny priest that lived in the parish, and he would make these statues. He, he would be very crafty in doing this, and Angelo Copati. And I, and I remember looking at him making these statues, and I'm thinking, he makes these statues. But in the evangelical church that I attended, there were no statues. It was always an empty space. It was just the voices of the people, the joy of the music and the word. That was different in the sense that I could realize that my sins were forgiven, that I could talk to God, that I didn't need to read a prayer. I could talk to God and that he would listen to my prayers. Thank you. Um, One of the things that we've been trying to do throughout this uh, series is Really, um, we want to be very uh, respectful even of the other views that we're talking about and present them in a, in a proper right way. Um, and so I think that's, uh, you know, that's an, important, um, an important aspect to what we're doing. So one of the things that um, we had talked about before was some words or themes that best describe uh, Catholicism. And, and the reason we want to do that again is, to, is for us to have a better clarity of the gospel that we're talking about. Um, so what, what words or themes, as we've talked before, just about uh, best describe Catholicism? 
Catholicism can be thought of, I like to think of adjectives that would describe it, um, hierarchical. The Catholic Church has an order uh, that is uh, sort of uh, left over from the Roman Empire. You have the Pope, you have the uh, cardinals who elect the Pope, you have the archbishops, and then you have the bishops who are the shepherds of congregations, and under them you have uh, the priests. That's hierarchical. They are catechetical in the sense that they use catechism. Um, when John Paul II became pope, he designated uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, the pre- previous pope, to head the commission to come up with a new catechism. So they are catechetical. They use a catechism. I remember as a kid, you have to read the catechism. You have to memorize the catechism. You have to observe the catechism so that you could go on to your first communion. They're missional. They are into missions. Um, the, I am a testimony of that because missionaries from Italy, all, all places in Italy, Portugal, Spain, France, they came and they, uh, they were dedicated to that mission, the mission field. They always, I always had a nun who spoke about the mission field and she always referred to me as a bon homme, the good man, because I wanted to be a priest. Um, they're also um, sacramental. They, sacraments are important in the Catholic Church. They have seven sacraments. Um, they, they are also uh, sacerdotal in the sense that they have priests that carry out their, their, their ministry. Um, they, they are also creedal. They depend a lot on the creeds. Uh, during a mass, there will always be the recitation of the creed, um, which, as we know, is a sum, summation of belief. Um, so these are some of the adjectives that would describe the church. How would, how would you say uh, tradition plays a role in, in, the, in Catholicism as well? Tradition is very important in the Catholic Church. To be Catholic is to be traditionalist. You have to be traditionalist because that's at the core of the church. Um, in fact, tradition is equivalent to the Bible in the Catholic Church uh, as I mentioned before, in the hierarchy, you have the Pope with the cardinals when they make doctrine, which eventually becomes dogma. Um, this, this is important to understand because evangelicals, Protestants, have the Bible as the centerpiece of our worship. Catholics have tradition and the teachings of the church as centerpiece. The Bible may be mentioned during a, a sermon, and you will have readings during the homilies that the priest uh, does, but it's not the centerpiece. The centerpiece is the tradition, uh, the lighting of candles, the rituals, uh, the processions, the ornaments. It's all tradition. Um, in fact, to the, theologically, the tradition and the Bible are sort of one to the point that to be a good Catholic is to keep those traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the some of the differences that we we talked about, we obviously don't have the time to talk about every one of them um, this morning with with everyone here. But well, one of the things we wanted to do is just bring out some of the theological differences between uh, what we would say is biblical Christianity and Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, so one of these areas that I'd like to ask you about is uh, in relation to prayer. We talked about this some um, before um, the, in, the, in the Catholic tradition, going to that word, 
uh, praying to Mary, praying to saints, uh, to the dead, for the dead. Um, and even you, you had mentioned even the layout of the, of, of the altar in the Catholic Church kind of plays into this. Could you talk a little bit about that, just the aspect of prayer and how that is different? Uh, it's very different being a Catholic to, to say prayers. Uh, in fact, many Catholics would say to me today as a chaplain, I don't know how to pray. I have never prayed before to God. I've always have to have my prayers or have the priest say the prayers. Um, let me start with a layout of the, layout of the church. Um, if you ever go into a Catholic church, you probably never noticed this before, but between the door to the altar, there is this layout. There are the pews, and then you get closer to the altar, and you see an arrangement of statues. In fact, there are some churches that have so many, so many statues that you can get confused into what's going on here. So much stimulation. But there's so many statues. And the order of the statues is always important because it's theological. Not only are the, the pews arranged in a way, but when you get to the altar, you notice there is a saint on either side. It could be Joseph. It could be uh, the Archangel Michael. It could be St. Jude. Whichever saint you pick, they're, they're there. But closer to Jesus, there is the altar where the priest is. And then after that, there will be Mary. You notice that Mary is always closer to Jesus. Or there is a Mary with baby Jesus. And then eventually you get to the cross. This is theological. To get to Jesus, you have to go to them and through them. Eventually, if you get to Jesus, it's because of his mother. Mary is very important in Catholic theology. Um, throughout church history, Mary has also been, at one point or another, considered to be co-redentrix. She co-redeemed us with her son, which is not biblical. Uh, Mary was, did, never saw herself this way. We know this from Luke chapter 1. Behold, the, the bond slave of the Lord, let him do as he says. Uh, so, but the average Catholic doesn't know this. The tradition, you, you don't know what is there. You just do things because it's tradition. Um, prayer, prayer can be said to God, but in the Catholic tradition, you say prayer through the saints. Saints are seen as their former humans, if you will, like us, but they're acts of piety that were recognized by the church and there is a process of beatification, canonization that takes years because they have to prove at least two miracles to do that, to canonize them. But you pray to saints. And intercession, intercession is biblical. Paul says, pray for me. A mighty door has opened up and many are opposing it. But when it comes to the altar and prayer in the Catholic tradition, the saints are the ones who mediate our prayers so that God will hear us. And that's what the arrangement is the way it is. When it comes to Mary, um, Mary, as I mentioned be before, can be seen or has been seen as covenantrix in that tradition. I remember just recently, a few days ago, I had a funeral. And the family was very grateful that their mother was devoted to Mary. Um, and they emphasize, we want to make sure that Mary is highlighted during this funeral. And I 
prayed, and the Lord gave me John chapter 2, which Mary is prominent in that passage, is the wedding in Canaan. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Jesus responds, woman, what is it to you and to me? It's not my hour yet. But then the answer that Mary gives to the servant is what I emphasized. Do whatever he tells you to do. Mary never looks at herself and says, worship me, praise, praise me, pray to me. She says, do whatever my son tells you to do. Because he is the redeemer. She was the vessel the Lord used to save the world. In fact, that's what Gabriel told her. His name shall be Jesus, for he shall be the Savior. So Mary said, do whatever he tells you to do. You have to understand in Catholic theology, there are three levels of worship, so to speak. The dulia, they all have Latin names because, like I said, part of the Roman Empire. Dulia is what we do in worship to saints. Hyperdulia is what we do to Mary because she has a little more... uh, gravitas and weight in theology. And then there's latria, which is done to God. That distinction in the average Catholic, it, because of the lack of understanding of their theology or what's behind that theology, is lost. Um, and as I said, as I was reading Aquinas, he discussed these things. And over the years, as I grew older and, and observed the Catholic tradition more closely. I knew cardinals, I knew bishops, I, I knew all kinds of people. But there was always something missing. In fact, I, I thought it was funny in, in, in the, uh, thinking about praying to the dead. A lot of Catholics pray to the dead. We are not to pray to the dead. Praying for the dead. We're not to pray for the dead. But you, if you wonder where does that come from, it comes from their canon. There is, the Catholic Bible is different from the traditional Protestant Bible. In terms of the New Testament, it's the same Bible, 27 books. In terms of the Old Testament, we have uh, 39 books. They have 45, 46 books, depending if you put Jeremiah and Lamentations together. But there is one section in the Old Testament in the Catholic Bible known as the Book of Maccabees. Maccabees was a Jewish general and there is a war. And during this war, a lot of soldiers, Jewish soldiers, die. As it was customary for the Jews, they would take the bodies of the dead and return them back and bury them. But then Maccabees noticed, Judas, uh, noticed that the, these fallen soldiers had amulets in their bodies, sort of uh, magic charms. And he said to himself, this cannot be. It's against Jewish tradition. So he decided to uh, make an, uh, an offering, collect an offering, send it to Jerusalem for oblation for the dead. And interesting, the writer ends by saying, it's a good thing to pray for the dead. So a lot of people pray for and to the dead. But Christians don't do that. We are not mandated to do that. We pray to God through his son. Right, amen. We don't pray to the dead. So you, uh, in that story you told with the, with the funeral, you were asked to 
bring up Mary, but you did so by pointing actually Mary to Christ in your, in your message. And so that was, that was great. We, we only have a few minutes here left. Um, wanted to ask if you could share, uh, one of the things you shared with me earlier is um, when you were growing up, you had a, a photo of, of Jesus that you would hold on to. Can you, I think that would be just really important for, for us to hear just how that impacted you when you actually realized later on that the picture you were looking at was actually not Jesus. Mm. Um, um, as a kid, the nuns would give us little pamphlets and, and photos. Sometimes you would have even what is called relics, which is the clothing of somebody, a piece of clothing would be given to you as a miracle for miracle because this person was uh, considered a saint. And I remember during vocation week, uh, one of the nuns gave me a little picture about this size, almost as close to this picture of Mary. And I remember she gave it to me and said, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. It wasn't until I grew older, I happened to be in Virginia, I was watching a movie, and it was about the life of Jesus. And the man in the movie was the same man in the picture. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, that's Jesus. He's still alive. (laughs) Because it was the same picture. I did not know that the man that none told me was Jesus. His name was Robert Powell. He's a British actor who, who played the part of Jesus in a movie called Jesus of Nazareth, which came out in the 70s. That was a shock. I worshiped that image. I lit candles to it. I prayed to it. But it was a human being, Robert Powell, an actor. In fact, Robert Powell reflecting, he's in his 70s, 80s now, reflecting about playing that role He said he regretted playing that role because people worshipped his image, Mm -hmm. which is what I did as a kid. Yeah, I thought that was such an interesting story for Herlene to share because I don't think sometimes we realize the impact just of the commands in Scripture of not having Christ or God uh, reflected in images. And here is an an example of how that could be uh, taken in, in such a way that you actually thought... I'm seeing Jesus and how it changed even just how how you worshipped. Let's thank uh, Herlene for taking this time. I think you could tell that we could have talked for a good hour. Um, And uh, I encourage you, if you've not yet had the opportunity to get to know uh, Herlene, and his wife, uh, Lori, to do so, uh, you'd have some great conversation, I'm sure. Um, I want to thank you again, Herlene, for doing that. And I know it's uh, everybody who's been sharing has really been uh, just taking uh, time and, and going through uh, even their, just, just the struggle of coming up in front of people, but also just the spiritual uh, struggles, uh, the things that are happening that kind of push against them. Uh, doing it, and I'm just so thankful for each and every one of you uh, stepping out.
Well, you, you guys already know from previous messages in this series that I don't have a lot of time. Um, so I want to get right into what it is uh, that I'd like to share with you. And a lot of it is very much going to go deeper into uh, what we already heard today. But I want to start with uh, how and when uh, Roman Catholicism began. And so I want to walk you through what I'm calling a very brief history because you'd have to go through church history um, and that would be broken up into probably two classes over two semesters to really get into it and you still wouldn't get all of it. Um, but first you should just understand that ca- the Catholic doctrine uh, teaches that Jesus Christ really is the founder of Catholicism. That's really how they, how they see it, that it all started with his birth, life, uh, eventual death, and resurrection. And then they move into uh, the primacy of the Apostle Peter, uh, known to Catholics as uh, St. Peter. And Peter is seen as the one that Jesus sets apart above all the other apostles. And then along with uh, Peter and, and kind of elevating him, Um, is the establishment of papal authority. When Jesus spoke to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, and he said, upon this rock, I will build my church, Catholic tradition holds really that that three things happened virtually simultaneously when that happened. First, the papacy was established. Second, Peter became the first pope. And third, the Roman Catholic Church officially uh, or formally Uh, began and was established. Rome became the home to Catholicism because it was where Peter, their first pope, was martyred and it was the capital of the Roman Empire. And you've already heard uh, from Herlene just the impact of Rome on the church. And uh, so, so very early on, Rome really became synonymous with Catholicism. Another significant event was the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, in AD 312. And what he did is he legalized Christianity and he was largely responsible for the spread of Catholicism. And then some other significant events in Roman Catholic history are the Edict of Milan, which happened in AD 313. And that was the official edict that uh, legalized Christianity. Um, And what it did is it ended that age of Christian martyrs in Rome and the new age of Rome becoming the central home uh, to Catholicism really began. And then you have the first council of Nicaea in AD 325, where disagreements in theology didn't take long to, to, to come up and, uh, among Christians. And, and so this council was formed to establish some guidelines. And one of the, uh, one of the things they, they established was the Trinity, belief in the Trinity, and also the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ was established at this council. And then there was the schism of 1054, because more division arose between Catholics in the East and Catholics in the West, and the Catholic Church divided into the Western Church and the Eastern Church, and the Western remained as Roman Catholicism, and the Eastern became the Eastern Orthodox Church, which still exists today. And then, of course, we moved to the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformation was, a, was really a, a widespread theological revolt, in, mainly in Europe, against the, what they called the abuses and the totalitarian control of the Roman Catholic Church. You had Luther in Germany and Zwingli in Switzerland, Calvin in France. And these reformers protested what they called unbiblical ideas and views 
of the Catholic Church, and they were using as their source the scriptures. And what they were doing is calling for the Catholic Church as a whole to return to what they called sound biblical doctrine as taught by the scriptures and as taught by the apostles of Jesus Christ. And then you have the four major groups of Protestantism that came out of the Reformation. Luther's followers became the Lutherans and Calvin's, the Reformed Church, Knox, the Presbyterian Church, and the Reformers in England, uh, of course, became the Anglican Church. And, and so the Reformers, when you, look, when you look at what kind of undergirded them, they held to what's called the five solas. Uh, sola is Latin for alone. And they had sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And then sola deo gloria, God's glory alone. And these truths really became the foundation of the reformed movement. So that's a little bit of a background. What I want to do now is take some time to look at uh, some of the areas of theological difference. We mentioned a few of them uh, between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. And I want to start with uh, scripture. And again, I wish it could be more comprehensive, uh, but at least I'll give you a little bit of, uh, of teaching and information here that we can learn from. So the first area of theological difference would be scripture. And, and I think one of the things that we need to do as evangelicals is, is take responsibility for some of our own misperceptions uh, that, that we have, even about Catholic doctrine. Uh, because a lot of Christians may say that, or a lot of evangelicals may say that Catholics don't hold to a high view of Scripture. But if you really look at Catholic doctrine, it does hold to a high view of Scripture. In the fourth session of the Council of Trent in 1546, the Catholic Church made it clear that they see the Scriptures as coming to us directly from the mouth of Christ or from the apostles under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So in that way, they would see it as revelation, but there are differences. So we should understand what they are and refer to them correctly. The two important and significant differences are first the canon of scripture, which is what Herlene men mentioned. And, and when, we, when I say the canon of scripture, we're talking about the books that make up the scriptures, what is considered to be a part of revelation and what's not. And, and so the Catholic church holds to a different canon of scripture and not just a different canon, but they hold to a different method of determining canon. And that's why you have a different, uh, different books. The Catholic Bible contains books that are not found in Protestant translations of, uh, of the Bible. And, and so you, you have these uh, apocryphal books, and uh, these books are, are denied the status of being in the canon by uh, Protestants, and historical evidence shows that these books actually were also not included in the Jewish canon either. So you have the canon of scripture, and then you have also this second part, and that is that scripture is equated with tradition. And, and so the Catholic Church really recognizes uh, an additional source of revelation, and that is tradition. The catechism of the Catholic Church even confirms this. It says sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. 
And, and this is why the reformers made it clear, sola scriptura, scripture alone, not scripture and church tradition. No, scripture alone is our authority. And then in the fourth session of Trent, the Catholic Church also affirmed something else. They affirmed that Rome's interpretation of scripture is the only correct interpretation. Any other interpretation they, they referred to that as anathema and said that would be accursed to, to even think that. So as you can see, it's, it's very different when it comes to scripture equated with tradition and the canon of scripture. So as biblical Christians, we hold all church traditions, we hold all cultural practices and norms under the authority of scripture because scripture is our authority. Second, in the, the second area of theological difference is sacraments. And, and you heard Herlene mention that the Catholic Church is, is, is sacerdotal. That means they see salvation as something that is mediated through the functions of the church and its sacraments. That's why you have to go through the church and, and the priest because this is how it's, this is built into their theology. They hold to seven sacraments, we hold to two. We call them ordinances rather than sacraments. The Catholic Church teaches that the sacraments are what they call ex opera operato. And that means by working of the works. And what that means is, maybe you won't remember uh, the Latin there, but remember this, because this is an important part. It means that the sacrament actually works by, and, and does what it's meant to do when you do it. So by going through it, you're, it's making it work. And, and so uh, the, the reformers would say that they were saying that sacraments automatically convey grace to the recipient, uh, recipient just by going through them. And then, of course, what can happen with that is it can become nothing more than ritual. You're just going through the motions, the seven sacraments are, you, you know them, uh, I'm sure uh, many of us here came out of Catholicism. Uh, baptism, which is the sacrament of admission to the faith, uh, which brings sanctifying grace to the person being baptized. You have confirmation, which confirms the baptized person. You have the Eucharist or Holy Communion, which is the central sacrament of Catholic worship. The priest consecrates the bread and the wine. We obviously practice here a memorial celebration of the Lord's Supper. We don't believe that the bread or the cup is changed into the actual body and blood of the Lord as Catholics do as they hold to transubstantiation, which again, through the priest of the prayer means that the actual bread and, 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 and the wine turns into the body and blood of the Lord. Then you have penance, the sacrament of penance or reconciliation. It's a means of obtaining from God pardon for sins. Then you have extreme unction, uh, known uh, also as the anointing of the sick. It's a sacrament that's administered to give strength and comfort to the ill. It's again performed by a priest. Holy orders. This is when uh, baptized men are ordained to serve the Catholic Church as deacons, priests, and bishops. Matrimony, and that's the sacrament that a baptized man and a woman administered to each other through the marriage vows and lifelong partnership. And so the Catholic Church sees these sacraments as necessary to salvation and to Christian living, but we would see Scripture, again, teaching something different.
The third area of theological difference that I really wanted to focus on in the time that we have left that I think is the most important area for us to talk about is in the area of justification. This was the main issue that was really at stake with the Reformation and the Reformers. So what is justification? Let me me just give a, a brief definition of that. It is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the sinner is righteous and innocent, free from the penalty and punishment of their sin. So it's a legal uh, declaration of God. And without justification, none of us are saved. None of us are free from the penalty of our sin. Now, Now follow me on this. In Catholic tradition and teaching, justification takes place after sanctification. So in order to be declared just, we must first be sanctified to the point that we're able to demonstrate a righteousness that is acceptable to God. And then this is where the sacraments come in. This is how the Catholic Church, again, teaches justification, by going through the sacraments. And so when a Catholic is baptized, they're infused with the grace of the baptism sacrament. And that grace is justifying grace. They believe it is justifying grace. That that the person then is justified. That's being baptized even as a baby. But they also believe that that person can lose that infused grace. In fact, you can lose it entirely. Which if they did... So you have a person who is, who, who is baptized a, as a baby and, and, and they lost this grace, they would no longer then be justified before God, which means you would be guilty of your sins and under the threat of damnation. And, and, and the loss of saving grace takes place when a person commits a mortal sin. And Catholic theology distinguishes mortal sins from venial sins, although there's really not universal agreement on actually what is a mortal sin. So why is it a mortal sin? And this is key. Why is it a mortal sin? Because it's serious enough of a sin to cause a person to lose the grace that they received at baptism, which means, again, you're no longer justified before God. And again, if not justified, then under damnation. So then how does a baptized Catholic that has committed a mortal sin get enough grace to once again be justified? Through the sacrament of penance. And in Catholic doctrine, the sinner then must show contrition, must confess their sin to a priest, and then must demonstrate acts of satisfaction. These acts of satisfaction show that a person is genuinely contrite. You see, the reformers really were not so much caught up with the confession to the priests because even the reformers themselves would would confess to one another as James 5 teaches. But their main issue was really these acts or works of, of, of satisfaction that had to be done. Because if justification is accomplished by our own works of satisfaction, then it's not by faith alone. It's not sola fide. So the issue at stake is this. Here's the issue. Is justification truly by faith alone? Or do we need to add on works of satisfaction in order to be justified? You see, the Catholic Church believes that justification requires faith. 
So I think we get that wrong a lot as evangelicals. I think we, we sometimes will say, no, they don't really believe in, in faith. They, no, they do. They teach, even in Catholic doctrine, that, that, that you need faith. But it must be faith plus works. Grace plus merit. Christ plus inher- inherent righteousness that we're bringing to the table. The Catholic Church teaches that we must have faith. They do, but it's faith plus works of merit. But the reformers, again, were saying, no, justification is by faith alone. There is no faith plus this or plus that. And the way that this, again, Catholic theology works, if a person commits sin and goes through the sacrament of penance rightly, if they do the works of satisfactory merit prescribed by the priest, follow me on this, then God is actually obligated to forgive them. Because they've done everything they're supposed to do. They went through exactly what they were supposed to do. So God is obligated, and then when God's obligated, grace is gone. There is no, there's no grace involved if, if God is in any way obligated. Because grace means that God has no obligation whatsoever to forgive us, to cleanse us. Grace means unmerited. It is truly unmerited, which, which means none of us have merited anything from God for him to show grace to us. And this is why the reformers were willing to literally die on this hill of justification. We say a lot, you know, I'm not going to die on that hill. They were willing to die on the hill of justification because these two views of justification are plainly not compatible. Either it is by faith and grace alone or it is by faith plus our own meritorious, satisfactory works. It's literally a question of what must we do to be saved. So what does the scripture say? For that, I want to read Ephesians 2. And just, just listen. It'll be up here on the screen for you to also read. And you were dead. This is, the, this is a description of humanity. All of, this applies to all of us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. For all of us. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, nature, it was in us, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. You notice it's not but Mark. It's not put but you. It's not put your name there. It's not but you did this. It's but God. Being rich in mercy. Because of his great love. The great love with which he loved us. So because of God who had mercy and love. Even When we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. 
And then Paul has to stop and kind of put this in again. By grace, you have been saved. And what he means by that is none of us did anything for God to love us, for God to show mercy to us. None of us did anything for that to happen. That's why it's grace. That's why he says that. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he kind of sums it up here in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is through faith in Christ that we are justified, but the fact that Christ just, that God justifies us through the faith in Christ is because of his grace. And this is not your own doing. This is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's by grace, through faith, not your own doing, not a result of works, not a result of our own satisfactory works. It's a gift of God so that we won't boast because we would boast. We're not saved by infusing ourselves with grace by doing sacramental things that the church or anyone else has prescribed for us. By grace you have been saved. But if it's faith plus our works, then grace is gone and God is obligated. But then do we forget good works? No. We don't forget good works because verse 10, it, 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 I just stopped there, but it, Paul didn't. You know, he kept, kept going, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the good works come as a result of being justified. Did you hear that? They come as a result of being justified, and it's not the means of being justified. So you can look at it this way. The Catholic Church would teach this more of the formula, faith plus works equals justification the scripture would be faith equals justification plus works and it is all of grace the works are at the other end of the formula there are many differences in catholic doctrine and theology but no difference is more crucial or important than understanding how we are saved and justified before god It is not faith plus works. It is faith alone. It is grace alone. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is a scripture that clearly explains the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us that happens in justification. I'll put it up here on the screen for you to see. For our sake, he made him, which is a reference to God making Christ to be sin, who knew no sin. So what is the sin that, if he knew no sin, if Christ knew no sin, then how is he made to be sin? Well, the sin that he has is the sin that comes from us that has been imputed onto Christ. 
that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That righteousness in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's not my satisfactory good works. It's not. It's Christ's righteousness imputed to me, imputed to you. This is, this is, this is the, the miracle of true justification. And all of this is possible only by faith, and it is all a work of grace by God because of his love, because of his kindness, because of his mercy, as we just read in Ephesians 2. So I pray that these things can be encouraging to you and also helpful to you in understanding the differences and and in understanding these differences, when you are talking with other people, maybe even in your family, a- approach it in the way that God has approached you, right? Because what did we read there in Ephesians 2? All, everything before but God is all the bad stuff we've all done, right? That whole description, it, was all, it, it wasn't good. That picture is not good, but it's but God, and then it's love and kindness and mercy. So when you're having these conversations, Let the God who showed that love, kindness, and mercy to you, let that love, kindness, and mercy flow through you to them. Because the last thing someone who truly understands justification does is thinks that they're more righteous than someone else. Because you understand that if it was not for the grace of God on you, where would you be? So I pray that God can help us with these truths to be the witnesses he's called us to be. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you that you help us to clarify it through the teaching of your word. We thank you, Lord God, for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you, God, that you have declared us who believe in Jesus in faith, trust in his work on our behalf. We thank you that these things, Lord God, are things that you have done and that we are simply recipients. Help us to be the witnesses you've called us to be. Humble witnesses, but witnesses, Lord, nonetheless, to our family and friends around us, to this community, we pray. Go before us, Lord, in doing that through the the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.